Lord God, we just uh, come to you and we praise you. And we thank you that you are the God that speaks and that you have spoken to us. And you've spoken through history, you've spoken through your word, and most of all, you've spoken through your son. And we just ask that you would, um, through your Holy Spirit, uh, give us the ears to hear what you have said. And um, forgive us when we, we try to ignore it. Um, and Lord, uh, thank you that you have given us a high priest uh, that comes before you for us. Um, so that we can be in your presence. And Lord, I just ask that you would um, be with all of us, that uh, we would just realize what that means and how it will change us to become more like Christ. Just watch over our time and be with those who aren't with us today. Uh, just... Help them to hear your voice and also uh, to know your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we are this week, we're still in Hebrews, and we're kind of at a turning point. Um, did you guys notice that as you read? Did, the, did you feel like maybe the what we were talking about was maybe shifting a little bit. Did anyone else see that as they read? Um, as you went through and you did your, um, your study, what were some of the words that, that stuck out to you or the phrases or things like that this week? Yes, high priest. Okay, I'll pick up the one that doesn't work, so we'll get rid of that one. The high priest. And just priests. And there is a difference, isn't there? Um, what else did we see a lot of this week? Yeah. Sin and son. I'll put sin and sins in here. There was a lot of that, wasn't there? Anything else? Jesus? You betcha. And God? Yep, grace. Son of God, yes. And we'll put that up here as a phrase, son of God. Um, and sometimes our words that are biggies are only in there one time. Um, and we also, and sometimes they're words that have been in the text leading up to this, but they're only in 
our text one time. And um, hold fast is one of those. And also confession. And what's the other word that we see a lot in here? And it's one of our little, uh, you know, like, what would you say? A kind of a little signage word. Uh, when I see that, I need to think this. Therefore. You gotcha. Therefore, for. So also. And then also, it's not quite like it, but it's a little bit because it, it, it's a let us. Let us do this. And that always also looks back like therefore does because it's, it's, we need to do this, but the reason why is back behind us. And um, that's something that I wanted to just kind of, you know, these are all um, good you guys did good getting picking out all of these important things. Yes, Phyllis. Uh, in those, the last one you mentioned there, uh, we, us, and our were mentioned times. Yes. We, us, and our. And that actually brings up something, Phyllis, that I wanted to. Yes, June. Has passed through the heavens, yes. And we're going to look at that. And there's one more in here that is a phrase that we need to go, hey, that means something. Eternal salvation is a good one, too. Yes. That, that's not, that is a good one. There you go. Um, okay, I'll start up here. Order of is a deck. And I always want to, I always want to put an I right there. Here's a deck. Maybe that's because I've got Oki in me or something. But um, yes, after the order of Melchizedek. And that's a biggie. And that is also where, when I said we're starting to look at a change, a little bit of a change in what we're talking about, um, this is this kind of the teaser for that. Um, and so we're going to do that. And I wanted to kind of go back and review, and we've been doing that. Nancy's been doing that every week. She kind of does a review. And do you remember when, at the very beginning, on the first lesson, uh, we did the overview, and we went through and saw what there were five kind of areas that go way back to the very first of your... Um, that first week. The main themes of Hebrews, we looked at that, and one was the revelation of God. And we covered that like at the very beginning in chapter 1, the revelation of God, and it was like God has spoken through his son, and his, 
this is who he is. And we, we had that revelation of God that we covered. Um, and then we've been talking about the supremacy of Christ overall. Um, he is supreme over what? That we started out, the angels, exactly. And Moses, exactly. And we're actually continuing that this week um, in that he is supreme over Aaron and just the priests in general. Um, so we're, we're, doing, we're doing that. The work of Christ, he was the once for all sacrifice. And the author has kind of started touching on that. But he hasn't really developed that thought yet, but he has kind of alluded to that a little bit. And then where we're at, number four, the priesthood of Jesus and the present work of Jesus, the priesthood of Jesus. And that's kind of where we're settling this week and we're starting. And we also have five exhortations for endurance. We've seen those throughout and we'll continue to see those. And then six... Um, the author expounds the finished work of God, which is Christ. And again, he does that. And when I say he kind of hints and we've got a teaser, that's actually, uh, this author is very skilled that way. So when you go through and you read Hebrews, it seems a bit, I don't know, if you just read it through, you go, this is, seems jumbled. It seems like we jump back and forth. But actually, the the author has a reason for this because he's, he's kind of introducing a thought and then he's going to go along and he's going to kind of build that thought. He's going to exhort the people that he's talking to and then he's going to expand that thought. And so this week we are starting with the, the thought of the priest, the order of Melchizedek, and he's actually talked about that a couple times before, but he didn't ever finish that thought. So you're going, why is this in here? Well, we're at another part where he's going to expand a bit and then also give us another teaser. So that's, that helps when you're reading um, to realize this. And people who are English teacher friends that are in Bible studies, I'm very envious of them because they realize what literary devices are and that they're not just to make life for kids in school miserable. <laughs> they, they actually give us a roadmap for how to read something. And the whole reason to read something is to be able to communicate. And God has given this to us to communicate. And so all of these different things that we bring into it that help us understand are just make it that much more richer and then we are able to see. So I guess what I'm saying is if you read through it and it seems like a jumble, don't give up. And uh, go to your, you know, your friends that have done more Bible study. And you, know, you guys are in here, so you're obviously, you go, oh, I need to learn how to study the Bible or I... You know, I need to expand my knowledge of that. And we never, we never want to quit doing that because there's always more to learn. So anyway, that's my encouragement for you guys. Um, but as we review and things that we're talking about, the other thing that I wanted to say is one of the things that will really help you is if every week 
you go through and you read through what we've already covered in one sitting in Hebrews up to what we're doing this week. And every week you read it. And I even think it's really good to get all of your little pages that you've done all your marking, put them all together, and then read through that. And one thing it does is it helps it you to realize all of this really does fit together. And, hey, he's been talking about this for a while. And also, it, it helps you to realize, wow, I, I actually have learned a lot about what we've already covered. Um, and all of that is a foundation for what we're going to be, continue to cover. So anyway, again, um, I would encourage you to do that every week. Um, just read it in its entirety so that you realize it all does fit together and it's not just this set of questions with this set of scripture. So, that being said, since then, is translated therefore in some translations, how do verses 14 through 16 relate to verses 12 to 14? And Hebrews is really good about this. I don't, every, it's like every other line in here is a six, since then or a therefore or a for. Um, so you're always going back. And do you guys remember what was that that he um, what was verse 12 through 14? Do you remember? Yes, the Word of God. And I'll just go ahead and read it. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And if you leave it there, what does that do? There is no hope. Um, and it's scary, isn't it? It's very scary. Um, he sees us for what we are. And he doesn't just see the outside. It's like he sees everything. He sees even the stuff that we don't know is there. And that's very scary. Because I was thinking about this, and I was thinking the things that we are afraid of as, as human beings, we are afraid of death, and we've, we've already seen he's defeated that. Um, the author addressed that already. The other thing that we're afraid of is being found out. I know I, you know, you think, ah, if they really knew what I was like, they would reject me. They would not be my friend. They would think I was a horrible person. That's what goes on in your head. Every one of us, I, I don't know if every one of us, but I would say a very big portion of us are afraid of that. Because how many times have we thought, boy, I'm glad my thoughts aren't out there. Or even where your motives are mixed. You're doing something that's good, but your motives aren't pure. Right. You're doing it because, you know, your own glory or something. Exactly. And so even that, yeah. you don't. 
Exactly. You don't want people to know. And sometimes you don't realize it. You know, you're doing that, and then after the fact, you go, wow, I was actually just doing that for myself. Um, and so here we have it. No creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who must, we must give an account. And think about what Adam and Eve did when they sinned. What did they do? They went and hid. And they went and hid because they knew who God was. And so that's where that leaves it. But guess what? That's not where it ends. So we pick it up this week. And it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, here is what God knows about us, but what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to draw near to the throne of grace. And why? Who do we have? We have Jesus. We have a high priest. And we're going to kind of now spend the rest of the time opening that up and seeing what that actually means. And I'll tell you, we have a lot of um, priest baggage um, in our thought processes because one we don't really know what a priest does really I mean experientially we don't really get it but God has it written for us to be able to learn what a priest does and the other thing is our teaching probably I don't know that we've learned I'm going off of for me I have some bad priest teaching because I have the, oh, well, we don't need a priest. We don't need the priest. And can't believe it. And then we have the whole um, difference between what a priest means for uh, someone who is a Catholic as opposed to someone who is a Protestant. Um, And so if, you know, we've got a big mix in here, and I'm sure all of us have had bad teaching or just, We just don't get it. We don't really get what a priest is or why one would need one. And we've actually heard, well, you don't need a priest. You just go straight to God. And so what we're going to do is kind of look at that and see what that actually means. And the first thing this says here is we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. And in question three, it says, in what ways was Christ like us? And so what did you find when you looked up your um, references there? How is Christ like us? Mm -hmm. He got hungry.
He can sympathize with us, our souls being sorrowful for whatever reason. Because his has been sorrowful to the point of death. Um, and he got tired. And what else? He wept. And you're right, he did. He gets his love to remember what's in his love. Yes. And he needed people with him to stay with him. Watch with him. So. He had relationship. Can we we say that? He had. And part of this is, and Nancy talked about this before, a lot of times we think, well, Jesus, he could have breezed through being a human because he was God. But the thing is, he was a human, and he had all of the feelings. He got hungry. He ate. He, he slept. He did all of these things, and that's part of the point. Um, according to this week's passage, who or what is Jesus Christ better than? As you read through, what is, what is Jesus better than? I heard it. He's better than the priests. Yeah, exactly. Um, because the priests were obligated to offer sacrifice for their own sin. And We'll kind of look into that here in a minute. But what duties are every high priest expected to perform? And this is this is just from here in our text. Let's let's do that. What what are what is the high priest expected to do? Yes, is to offer. Mm-hmm. Gifts and sacrifices. Gifts. <laughs> Gifts. <laughs> For sins. What else? Mm-hmm. Prayers. And supplications. And that kind of goes along. He's appointed what? Right. 
Yes, to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Exactly. And to deal gently with a giver and a slave. Yes, deal gently. I wish I could write as fast as I could talk. Um, <laughs> so as we have these things for the priests, they offer gift and sacrifices for sins. They offer up prayers and supplications, which is actually part of their being, uh, their acting on behalf of men in relation to God, and also they are to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. So if you look at, let's see, what the author did, he basically compared the priests of the Old Testament to Jesus as the high priest. And so if we go over here and we make a chart, this is the Old Testament, and this is Jesus as high priest. The Old Testament high priest, and you can just go down through, what was it? If you're going through here and you start with 5-1, who is he chosen from? Yes, chosen from men, among men. And he was appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. And we also had, he offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. And we had deal gently. With the way ignorant and wayward. And why could he do that? Why could he deal gently with the ignorant and wayward? Yes, he was beset with weakness. So, since he was beset with weakness, what did he have to do? 
He had to offer sacrifices. For his sin. And who is he appointed by? He's appointed by God. So you didn't just say, I think I want to be a priest and take it upon yourself. Things did not go well if you did that. And it happened. Um, and the earthly priests were from where? What family? The Levites, and specifically the order of, yes, the order of Aaron. And the high priest was in the order of Aaron. And then the rest of the priests were of the Levites. And, okay, and this one last one that it doesn't exactly say specifically here, however, it does other places, how many priests were there? Was, is it just one? Was Aaron the only priest? Yes, his sons. And so what? It, it wasn't like that guy was the priest forever, was he? It is. It's temporary. There's a succession of priests. Yes. When the priest dies, then his son takes over. Okay, so when we go to Jesus' high priest, and if we're reading along here, Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, so he was what? He was appointed by God. Yeah. And uh, one of the differences here, he was appointed by God, but who was he anyway? He was the son. But he didn't say, oh, since I'm the son, I'm the high priest. He waited and God appointed him. He did not assume that himself. So, um, what was the order of Christ. He wasn't in the order of Aaron, was he? He's the order of Melchizedek. And how long did that last? Forever, yes, it's eternal. So, right already. We're noticing some differences, aren't we? They're, they're both appointed by God, but Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. And for us, that doesn't really mean much yet. It will. We'll, we'll start to uh, unpack that as we go through Hebrews. But to the Hebrews, this would have meant something. And they already were very familiar with the priesthood, and what it meant, and th that that was how you had a relationship with God, and that it wasn't something that somebody just said, hey, I'm going to be the priest. And so 
the author is kind of showing, okay, this is here, and Jesus fits in the plan that God has. And then also, he's, he's outranking them here because he is the priest forever. There is no succession here. So then, when we look up at some of these other things, um, Jesus was human, wasn't he? In the days of his flesh, he became human, and we talked about that. How was he like us? He was hungry. He slept. He wept. All of these things. So, And so Jesus was chosen, but not just from among men. He was a man. He was the man. He was the son. And he was chosen. Yeah. So, but he was human. He was, a priest had to be human. And why did a priest have to be human? Representing us. Yes. So we can sympathize with our weaknesses, right? Because he's lived through it. But the difference is what? Does Jesus have to offer any sacrifice for his own sin? No. Because he was because he had no sin. He made it through the temptations. He lived through those and did not give in. So he had no sin. And he's, it says, he was one who in every respect has been tempted and is yet without sin. Gifts and sacrifices, we've talked about that. One, uh, Jesus, when he was in his flesh, he did prayers and supplications to God who heard him because he was obedient. And also, back in, uh, earlier in Hebrews, what did we learn that Jesus did? He made propitiation for our sins. So, as you're comparing them, and made as you compare the earthly high priests the from men from the order of Aaron yes tony
Yes. And Tony, that's a, that's a very good point, that um, Jesus was the high priest. And, and we'll actually just look into that as here in our next one. And number seven, who was Aaron? Because that's kind of where we're talking about that. When you guys looked up Exodus 28 and also Leviticus 16, what did you find when you looked that up? There were a lot of rules, weren't there? Um, Exodus 28. I actually fell asleep one night because I was listening to that. And, then, <laughs> and, and John came in. What are you doing? And I was dead asleep. I was like, I've been listening to the rules. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, at first, but that's the thing. You listen to it, and then you read it, and then you start to go, wow, there were a whole lot of rules just about what the priest wore. And here's where we have a big problem in that we just don't get it. And so we need to put in the study time. And this is, this is in the Bible. This was their, their scriptures that they were going to. And so we need to go there too, and we need to learn what this is, and that this just wasn't, you know, you looked at the, the priest's garments, and, you know, um, it, it was very, very specific, and certain people did certain things. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit to be able to do what they needed to do to make the garments, and the garments, each part of it, you know, it just wasn't this fancy thing to make it look glorious, although it did make it look glorious. But each piece had a part to it. And could the priest go in without this on? No way. Um, all of this had to be just so, and each piece meant something. And we read through that, and we get bogged down. And so that means we need to keep studying it and realize, okay, this does mean something. And what... Nancy, what we wanted you to do this week is to go through and say, wow, there's a lot of rules there. And then know this means something. All of these pieces mean something. The 12 tribes, he went in, the priest went in, and these represented the people of Israel that the priest was representing before the Lord. He was wearing these things on his person. And also, there were things about this that made it so that he wasn't just struck dead the minute he went in to see the Lord. Now, when you read Leviticus 16, did, did anybody realize what that was, what that was describing? That was the Day of Atonement? Yes. Um, and so, and like Tony was saying, the way it was set up, the high priest was chosen and God gave all of these rules um, for how this was supposed to work. And why did he do that? He was making a way for them to actually be able to have, go in to him because otherwise they couldn't even approach God at all. You know? And in there it said, the people can't come up here only the priests, and then only the high priest can come in. And as Tony was saying, on the Day of Atonement, that only happened once a year, where the priest went through the veil 
in and he gave the sacrifice. He had to sacrifice for himself too, for his sins. And then he went in and he did the he sacrifice for himself and also the sacrifice for the people. And he brought that to the Lord. He went through the veil into the Holy of Holies. And again, we're going to study this more as we go and realize what all the pieces of the temple mean and what they're a picture of. And Tony, what you're talking about here is um, Jesus is the high priest. And so in what ways is Jesus a superior high priest? And we, we talked about that. He doesn't have to go through the process of offering a sacrifice for his own sin, does he? His sacrifice was one time. What did you say, Lynn? He was sinless, so he didn't have to sacrifice for himself. Yes, and we're also, the other thing is, he is both the priest and the sacrifice. Um, and he's a king, exactly. He, he's a king and he sits at the right hand of God. He is eternal. He is the final priest. And also, as Tony was saying, he's passed through the heavens. And like you said, he sat down at the right hand of God. And again, we hear that. And we don't understand what that means. And so we go back, and remember I was talking about we have all this priest baggage and how we don't need a priest, or we may have learned, well, they used to need a priest back in the Old Testament, but now we don't need a priest. And then here we go. We started out with this, and we're all laid bare before God. So do we need a priest? We do. And Jesus is our high priest. And so that's kind of what we need to realize is that we do need a priest. We just have the priest. We have the most high priest, and his name is Jesus. And so that's where we probably need to back up and, and again, this is consider Jesus and realize just exactly what it is that he has done, and also what he is doing. And because the reason that we can come to the throne confidently, why is it? He understands, and where is he? Where is he? He's sitting there at the right hand of God, being our priest. And so that's, that's the important thing. We think about Jesus and his sacrifice, what he did for us, like in the past tense. And the, him being the priest is what he's doing for us now, because he's sitting there. And the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and the veil, that's a picture of 
where God is sitting. And Jesus is sitting in there with him. He's passed through. Not the veil, the heavens, like the real thing, not the picture of it, but the real thing. He's passed through that, and he's sitting down. And this is another thing. If you guys have been in, for those of you who have been in Hebrews, and there is a chair in the holy, holy the, no one sat down. They weren't done. And so um, we're going to, st- again, this is hard because we're going to study some of this later, and this is what the author does is he gives you these hints, and here's what's coming, here's what's coming later in Hebrews. He's going to expand it more. And so that's kind of the way Hebrews is written. So it can be a little confusing if you're wanting to go, I need this resolved for this piece of Scripture right now. No, wait, keep going. Keep studying because it will develop as you go. So anyway, um, I'm going to have to figure out. This is why Jesus is a superior high priest to all of the priests before. Um, We've told he doesn't have to go through to atone for his sins. He's the priest and the sacrifice. He's passed through the heavens and sat down at the right hand of God. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And he was made perfect and became the source, the source of eternal salvation. In question 10, we talk a little bit about Melchizedek. What did you find out about Melchizedek when you read Genesis 14, 18? Yes, he was the king of Salem. And he blessed Abram with the blessing. Abram gave him a tenth. He was also a priest of God Most High. And what else did he do? What did he bring out? He brought out bread and wine. Okay, so these are things that are similar, and again, like I said, we're going to talk about him some more, but there are some similarities between Jesus. Jesus is a king. He's a priest of God Most High, and there's some bread and wine stuff going on there, and we're just going to leave it there. Um, so (laughs) So anyway, then we saw where Jesus was made perfect through suffering. We talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago. Um, And then in verse 8, it says that he learned obedience through what he suffered. And it says, what does this mean and what does this not mean? And I decided to start with the easy one. What does it not mean? That That part was easy to answer, wasn't it? What doesn't it mean? that he was made perfect, and that he learned obedience. That he wasn't already perfect, and also what? He was never unwilling to obey. It wasn't like he was disobedient, and he had to learn how to be obedient. And so we've we've got the part that it doesn't mean, okay, we know that, so what does it mean? 
And he obeyed. He, he, I like that word, subordinate. And the thing is, he was the son. And he, put himself under God in that he did not, like you said, he did not assume and say, I am a priest. He waited for God to appoint him priest. And also, he just... Part of it is he did all of this when it says he was made perfect. And we talked about this before. Part of the being made perfect is he went through all of this as a human. He did all of these things as a human, and he went through without sin. He stayed, he perfectly obeyed God. And the thing was, he was already perfect, but he hadn't been human and perfectly obeyed God. And he did that. He lived his life. He perfectly obeyed unto death. And he perfectly resisted all temptations unto death. And you're right. He did not say, I'm going to fix this myself. I will do God's will, and I will submit to him and trust. And so that's um, a big part of it is that he did all of these things as a human, and did them perfectly. And then he died, was resurrected, and sat down at the right hand of God. So how does knowing that Jesus can sympathize with your weaknesses change how you approach him? And how are you drawing near to the throne of grace? Yes, it does. It encourages us. And like we said, because we have a high priest, we need to go to the throne. But the way we remember, the way that we get there is because of Jesus. We need to go to him. And we can be in the presence of God because Jesus is there mediating for us. And he is also cleansed us. Remember all of those uh, when you read through in Leviticus, the priest had to do a lot of cleansing things to be able to even put on the robes that he needed to put on to go in and give the sacrifice. And Jesus has done that for us if we go to him. And that's the thing. We have to go to him. Um, Mm-hmm. We can't shrink back, but approach him with confidence because we have a high priest. I think, you know, I mean, we have scripture that tells us uh, he is a friend of ours. You know, we have songs that sing about, I am a friend of God, anywhere with Jesus, those kind of things. I mean, when you approach your friends, you approach them with much more confidence than you approach a stranger, somebody that you don't know. So if you're in relationship with Jesus, then you feel the right, the encouragement, the um, 
persuading you know, to talk to him. Mm -hmm. Yes, which means that you need to have the relationship through studying the word and prayer and having accountability of other Christian friends in your life. Those are the things that help you to have that relationship and grow in it. Um, so, again, Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians who are experiencing what? Persecution. And because of that, what are they wanting to do? They're wanting to go back. Jump ship, exactly, Lynn. And what is the author doing? He's encouraging them. And he's encouraging them because what's, what's the deal with them? Is, is it going to get uh, better? No, it's not. It's not going. In fact, it's getting. It's going to get worse. And what he's saying is, be encouraged. And it's not be encouraged because things will get better. It's be encouraged because you have Christ. And so, and Christ was subjected to suffering, to teach obedience, him to go through the obedience. So for us. Is that encouraging? It needs to be, doesn't it? It needs to be encouraging. Um, and so, because, and the other part of this is how the experience of suffering in your life, how does it affect our relationship with God? It makes it deeper. If you are smart, because sometimes with suffering, I act like a two-year-old, start going and kicking, and, and that's not what you should do, because he's there to help us, but sometimes in our fleshly nature, we pitch a fit. You're right. We get a choice. It either makes it, it either helps us grow deeper, or we go, hmm. And we do. We act like two-year-olds and pitch a fit, and that is actually a very good, Lynn, that's a very good teaser for what we're going to start studying in the next week about acting like two-year-olds. But um, so for us to be able to go and for it to deepen us, that's part of our maturing and growing up in Christ and going through suffering, it helps us to mature and to deepen our relationship with, with God. Um, I think also to learn the lessons he has for us during that time of perseverance and the things that you can look back and go, okay, this is what I got from that. Because it's not, if you, if you look to him, it's not wasteful suffering. Right. And um, that's, and again, there's a lot of, we get in trouble when we start saying it's this way or it's this way. Like, well, if you're, the, like I'm saying bad teaching out there, if, if things are going wrong, you must have done something wrong. Or if things are going right, then you're doing okay. 
and that kind of stuff, you kind of got to go, that's bad thinking. I need to throw that out. And so we need to uh, grow up so that we realize what suffering does for us, what it, how we need to go through suffering and how it, we can be encouraged and refined, exactly, Lynn, through suffering. Yes, it does. So with Christ as our great high priest, <laughs> this one stepped on my toes, um, to deal, we are called to, uh, we're supposed to serve as a royal priesthood, and we're supposed to deal gently um, with the ignorant and wayward. Um, do we do that? No. So... This is a good one to remember when you're getting frustrated with your um, fellow believers or your kids or whatever, <laughs> that we need to deal gently with them, and, and uh, God has called us to do that. And dealing gently doesn't mean ignoring it, and it doesn't mean giving them a pass, but it does mean being patient and helping them along. So... I wanted to end, I, there was a quote in one of the um, commentaries by Cockerell that I wanted to read, um, because I think it's, re it's, it's very, very important for us to realize that we still need a priest, and he's Jesus, because we don't get to be in the presence of God without a priest. So, um, because we're sinful. And we, we have the priest, and the priest is Jesus. It says, because we, as God's people, have this kind of high priest, the pastor urges us to, the pastor is the writer of Hebrews, um, he urges us to approach the throne of grace with confidence in order to receive the help we need for victorious living. Under the Old Covenant, none could approach God's throne, the Ark of the Covenant, in the most holy place, save the high priest, and he but one day in a year. This annual approach was with great fear, because God's throne was a place of judgment against sin. Now, however, God's people are urged to draw near to the true heavenly throne of God with confidence, because their high priest has made that throne a throne of grace, a true mercy seat for those who approach God through him. God is no less holy than he was in the Old Testament. But Christ's obedient sacrifice has taken away the sin of the faithful and cleansed their consciousness, consciences from dead works so that they can come into the presence of this holy God. Thus the confidence with which God's people approach is more than a feeling. 
Through the work of Christ, they have received authorization to enter God's presence. As God's people, the recipients of Hebrews, and we as their heirs, can be sure of God's gracious acceptance. So, anyway, um, that's it. Take a five-minute break. Okay, let's, uh, let's deal a little bit more with this question. I told Brenda I thought she did a great job teaching but then she kind of got a little too close to some of the stuff I wanted to talk about. Um, but that's fine. I don't, think we can, I don't think we can overdo some of these things. At least um, I'm convinced that we can't because it's really good to go back and to spend some additional time asking and talking about what some of these key words actually mean because we can look at them and we can say, yeah, we should be, and then get there the wrong way. Um, it's why... Our math teachers, when we were younger, said, yeah, I don't want just the answer. I want you to, I got this lot on my, on my grades. It would, what would they put? Do you remember on those tests? Show your, show your work. And I remember asking, why do I need to show my work? Like, why do you care? If I, if, as long as I can get there, is that all that matters? And the answer is, well, you may have, and I've done this before, you may get to the right answer in the wrong way, which actually then means... If you get to the right answer in the wrong way, that next time you have a problem, you may not get to the right answer. Because the, the problem is, is that you don't know how to get where you really need to go. You lucked out. And that becomes a major issue. And so kind of one of the key ideas I want to play off of is what we talked a little bit about, the idea of confidence. And it's a word that in our culture is a very uh, popular word. Right? We want our children to be what? Confident. And, th and think about this. Like, I try to build confidence into my children, right? I don't want them to be, um, I don't want them to be wussy. I don't want them to be missy mousy. I don't want, I want them to be confident. But, but if, you, if, I, if I were to go back and ask, I'd say, okay, so how many of you have worked on confidence with your kids? Right? How many of you have tried to instill confidence in a friend who just is really bad at their own confidence? They're really bad. How I many have you tried to do that? So what do you try to do? You build them up. You try to help them understand. I mean, really what we mean by this word is that, don't we? When we're talking about confidence, do we not mean self-confidence? That's what we mean. I want you to realize how, and, and, and truly, this is the part that always concerns me. As a dad, um, it was harder for me than it was for my wife. Um, but we just spent years lying to our kids. Um, overestimating, did we not? We overestimated their ability. How many of you told your kids that they were just beautiful? Right? How many of you told your kids that they were the most beautiful? Right? I mean, how many of us have said that? Yeah, exactly. Listen, I think your daughters are gorgeous. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, Here's the point, though, is that do you realize what happens when everyone's kid is the most beautiful? At some point in time, and this is the part that I find fascinating, is I have to reconstruct their, their brokenness in my office in college or after a messy divorce because some very real people in their lives, not you, uh, they didn't support your position. You're the most special. You're the sweetest. You're the... You're setting your kid up for failure. 
So it's the problem with self-confidence. When, so when, when you spend all of your time talking about how your kids are great and they're just great and then they meet the Lord without Jesus because they're really good kids. How many of you have really good kids? Not really good kids. I have great kids. And so I'm going to try to teach them to, here's how you stand before the Lord of heaven. You just describe how awesome you are and how great you are and all the good things that you did. And so you can stand before God and you can just go off on your list of great accomplishments. I mean, think about it. I want you to think about this for a moment. That is, for many of us, our plan for Judgment Day. And maybe not us, right? I'm talking bigger collective, okay? For most people, that is their plan. They're going to stand before God, and they're going to try to mount a defense for why God should let them into eternity, and they're going to list a number of great things that they did. And they learned that in part by a culture that is trying to help them be this. Is that not true? Tell me, honestly, at any point in time you go, you so don't get the way culture is. I'm, I, I'm pro, I promise, I'm always wondering, am I the only one that sees this? Am I the only one that, that, that kind of feels this way? And I, I talk to people, and the majority of them go, no, I, I see what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. And I just seem to obsess about things. But the more that I think about, even what I have done, I mean, I wish I could say, yeah, and I didn't do that. My kids don't. No, no, no. I, I looked at my kids. Man, you're, employers love confident people. I told my boys, like, women, women they, they, they want real confident, but they don't want arrogant. Well, what's the difference? I don't know. Good luck with that, son. I mean, I, I haven't done good with it, so I don't know why you're going to do well with it, but they really do. They love, how many of you love confidence and hate arrogance? And the line is like hair thin between those two things sometimes. And so what do we do when we try... And why, this is what I find fascinating. The more that I began to just reflect on this lesson, just thinking about this question and what I do as a parent or what I do as a friend or what I do as a pastor, right? Um, I, I will have people occasionally say, I wish you would be more encouraging. And I take it seriously. Um, there are usually people that are really uh, not self-aware, and I, I love to point out just how complicated it is, especially from the stage, to be really encouraging. Because I also got a bunch of people saying, you know, you're, I, I wish you would be more uh, honest about, about the problems that are going on in our culture and even in our church. Yeah, well, I got like four emails this week telling me to be more encouraging, right? So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's this balancing act that I have as a minister, that you have as a parent, that we have even as friends for one another. And the question becomes is, so where are we going to place our confidence? What are we going to do so that they can actually line up? And my, the most important day of my life is Judgment Day. So how do I make sure that on that day I hear, well done, good and faithful servant, instead of, I never knew you? Now, here's what, as I was reflecting on it, what's very interesting is that this issue, I believe, is tied to the ongoing debate that you can't speak for four minutes without somebody, and especially in the book of Hebrews, you can't speak for four minutes with talking somebody about salvation, and can you or can you not lose it? 
These are tied together, right? Do you realize how they're tied together? So when you begin to look at them, even in this section, chapters 3 and chapters 4, it's, it's interesting how this confidence is tied to a number of different, to, I would argue, two different things. Okay? And I want to I talk about both of them because both of them matter. Now, priority, order is going to matter. So what do we put our confidence in? And I'm going to say we should actually put it in two things, but we need to make sure that we get the order right. Okay? Now, what I want to do when I, when I begin here, um, how many of you did a word study on the word confidence and looked at all of the uses of that Greek word, uh, parousia, uh, through the New Testament? Did anybody do that? I mean, it's not hard to do, actually, with the Blue Letter Bible. It's really an easy thing to do. Nobody did it? Okay, great. Um, somebody did it? Did you say somebody did it, Lynn? Oh, you did other ones? You did that one? Okay, no, that's great. So then let's, let's look at some of these. There's actually quite a few of them. And I want you to just see what this word means so that you can know similar ways in which it was done. Because I, I love, this actually is a very fascinating word. I've told a story. I'll try not to tell the whole thing again. Um, this is a word that caught me walking almost into the pulpit. Uh, I didn't have this word studied, and it almost cost me big time in a sermon that I preached. First text, Mark chapter 8, verse 32. Take a look at the text. Mark 8 through 32, the word is in the text, although you're not going to find it in the English, confident. So instead of reading the whole thing, just tell me where in the text the word is. What's the word? Plainly. What? And this is what almost bit me, actually. So I'm preaching through Mark 8 years ago. Mark 8, 32 is the text. I'm preaching through Mark 8 years ago. I've got a whole point in my sermon about how Jesus began to speak to them plainly about who he was. Okay, now 832 is a different one. He said this plainly, so it's referring back to what happens in verse, in verse 31, that he began to explain to them plainly that he was the Christ and that he must suffer. And I, wanted, I went off on this. I mean, this is the danger. Plain, if I said he, he, did, he explained to them that he was the Messiah plainly, how many of you go clearly, like, use it, like simply, how many of you, when you hear plain, you go, yeah, it wasn't none of that preacher craziness. He just got real down on their level. That's what my sermon was about. And for some reason, before I left my office, literally, it must have been like 9.15, God stops me, okay, and says, take a look at that word that you have a whole point on. And I went, okay. And I went back and I took a look. Because I, I honestly, in the English, I, I saw the word plainly. It was like no-brainer. So to me, it's not like a deep theological term. I didn't think it was anyway. And I look at it, and I just, I remember going, thank you, Lord. Because the word doesn't actually mean clearly or simply. It actually means with confidence, boldly, without holding himself back in any way. So that's what this word means, plainly. Now, it is used most... Is that right? I believe it is. Yep, it is used most. The, the author that uses it the most is John. John is the one that uses it more than any other author. And I'm going to kind of walk you through some of these texts, and then you can write them down and look at them later. But these are some of the words here. John 7, 4. John records this. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. This is the, 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 the brothers of, the, of Jesus kind of ripping on him. 
they're kind of accusing him of being as a secret Messiah. And they're going, hey, why don't you go up? They're mocking him, by the way. Why don't you go up to, the, to, the, to Jerusalem and to the temple and make yourself known? Why don't you be confident with this? And weirdly enough, you may not like this, Jesus at some level lies slash deceives his brothers. And he says, the commentators don't know what to do with this. John says, he says he's not going up. Later on, he goes up. And they even add whole sections like, he will, I will not yet go up. But that yet is actually added just to make our understanding of Jesus better. It's not in the Greek. He says, I'm not going to go, and then goes. Now, I don't know exactly how Jesus did that, and whatever he does is good. But the disciples are, sorry, the brothers of Jesus are really frustrated with the fact that he's not being more in the open. Verse seven, chapter 7, verse 13, Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. 7.13 now, what's interesting is, as this plays out, 726, and here he is, Jesus, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that he is the Christ? So in that whole section, the brothers are going, you're not, that's where I realized, Ben, there, there are people that complain about things that even we do that they're just wrong on. So even though the brothers are complaining he's not being open enough, it's more that they're frustrated with him that Jesus isn't doing it. So the word openly is used a number of times. John 10, 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Eleven fourteen. Jesus told them plainly. Lazarus has died. So notice how this word is used a number of times. I want you to be, and, and here's the part that I want you to hear. So much of it has to do with this idea of confidence. And notice how this ties into our text. It actually has to do with speech. Jesus what? Spoke openly. The word literally comes from a, a Greek word, which means to say or to utter and it's, it's, it's two words, parousia, it's to be, to say with openness, is literally, it takes, it takes the word, all saying is kind of how it, 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 it was developed, etymologically. So I'm just, blah, I'm just telling you what it is. I'm just, I've got nothing holding me back. And so much of it is speech. Now, why does that matter? How do we approach the throne of grace? So much of how we approach the throne of, throne of grace, even in this text, Jesus approaching God. And, and what, what, how is Jesus approaching God? With, with confidence, but, but how? Uttering things. Like so much of how we approach the throne is through what? Prayer. So it really is a word. Now they, again, this is why it's important to realize this is why speech and life or lifestyle are very closely connected in the ancient world, but I would even say in ours as well. Speech and conduct and lifestyle are much more closely connected. And so how we approach confidently, I mean, it's, it's going to be not just your posture, but it's going to be Truly. So what are you going to say now that you're in the throne room of God? What are you going to say? Hey, you're here. He's here. God just showed up. He wants to talk to you. 
How are you walking in there? And there will be, in essence, a conversation that is going to ensue. Um, go to Book of Acts. Acts uses it a number of times as well, which I, I think is really, this, this, is, this, was, uh, this was actually kind of fun to look at these ones. Acts 2, notice, notice how much of this is speech-oriented, though. Acts 2.29, Peter, in the middle of the sermon, right, says this, Brothers, I say to you with confidence about David the patriarch that he both died and was buried and is in his tomb today. So Jesus is, or Peter is speaking confidently about David and who he is and what's happening. And he speaks confidently, hey, David's dead. Any questions about that? You can speak that one confidently, right? Because you know it to be true. Now it goes on in Acts 4.13, which Acts 4.12 says this. For in the name of Jesus, there is no other name given to men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12, one of my favorite verses of the Bible. No other name has been given to us by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus. This is an encounter that these disciples, Peter and John, have with the leaders, and they're trying to intimidate them. And they basically say, hey, we don't want you to talk about Jesus anymore. And they say, but here's the problem. Jesus is the only name by which we must be saved. 4.13, and when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men, which all that means, by the way, doesn't mean they weren't educated. It just means they weren't rabbinically trained. Okay, They spent three years with Jesus. So to try to pretend these guys were uneducated, you have to understand what, what, what Luke means by uneducated. We all know they spent three years with Jesus, correct? Tell me that's not an education. Okay? So, they were, my dad kept saying that. The disciples never went to Bible college. I know. But they, unless you can get Jesus to come down and spend three years with me, I'm going to Ozark. Okay? <laughs> Perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. Okay? At their boldness and at their ability. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. When they saw their Parousia, their boldness. Acts 4.29. And now, Lord, this is a prayer. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. This is the disciples who, in, in, in part of this conversation, remember what they said to them? The leader said to the disciples, hey, be quiet. So this is intimidation. Hey, be quiet, quit speaking about Jesus. And they just left. <laughs> and then they prayed. Remember what they prayed? This is their prayer. They've just been told, you do this, we're going to hurt you. James, in a few short chapters, is going to lose his head over this issue. Literally. Neck separated. Head, body, no longer connected. And this is their prayer. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and, and save us at all costs because we are really, really afraid and we don't want to die. No, that's our prayer. Wait a second. Their prayer is this. That's our prayer. But their prayer was, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. We always ask God, make the threats go away. Do we not? I can't find that biblically. It's, it's actually God, give us boldness. Why? Because they're not going to change. 
Most likely, they're not going to change. God, grant me the courage and the boldness in the midst of this. That's that same word. Acts 4.31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. So their answer to their prayer happened. I love Acts 28.31. The last, this is the last verse in the book of Acts. Talking about Paul, who by the way is under house arrest. And in that instance of house arrest, it ends with this. Acts 28.31, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It's not the without hindrance word, it's the word boldness. Same word. And, and so here, here, this is what I'm beginning to ask. So what would then be the source of this? What would then be the source of this? Paul says it this way, 2 Corinthians 3.12, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. 2 Corinthians 7.14, I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all of our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. In Ephesians 3.12, he says this, in whom, speaking of Jesus Christ, we have boldness and access, boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Okay. So, not self. Let's put that down. So I think that's kind of interesting. Through our faith in him. Acts 6.19, another prayer for the Apostle Paul. This is, when I say don't pray for my safety when I travel, it doesn't mean I, I want to die. It just means that when I have people and they say, hey, I want to pray for your trip, I, I love to ask them, what are you praying for? And they're like, well, dummy, that you come back to your family. <coughs> really? That's it? I'm going to Japan to talk to people about Jesus and you just want me to come back and spend time? I can just bypass the whole thing by not going to Japan. I literally can just turn around in my car right now and go home. That's what you want? Well, no, but you know. I said, well, this is what I'm asking. And this verse is what shook me. This verse is where I get this idea from. Paul says, and also for me, meaning pray also for me. That's the context of, the, of, uh, of uh, Ephesians 6. Pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. That's what I would like for you to pray for for me. That is uh, Ephesians 6.19. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Efe Ephesians, <laughs> Ephesians 6.19. Pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Look at Philippians 1.20. This really kind of gives us a deeper understanding. That's why I love these word studies. It really gives us a deeper understanding of the statement we're going off of, right? Because the way this word is used in Hebrews is what? That we will enter boldly. Now, do you see all these pictures of what boldness looks like? This is how we enter. And what the amazing part is, 
is that it's usually with enemies. Look how much of it from the Gospels is opposition and us remaining bold in the midst of opposition. Now all of a sudden it's, it's changed a little bit. A lot of Paul, it talks more about a hope that we have with confidence. I love Philippians 1.20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Like what I wish more than anything else is that in my body, in my life, he's talking about that I'm in prison. But you don't need to worry about me because I know that if I die, it's a good thing. And if I live, it's a good thing for you. If I die, I get to be with Jesus. If I live, I get to be with you. So it's a win-win for me. I'd love to be with Jesus. Love you guys, but I'd rather be with Jesus. But the truth is, what I want more than anything else is that I will not be ashamed and that I will stay faithful to the task that Jesus has given to me. First Timothy 3.13. Talking about deacons, which is just the word servants, those who are leading in the service of the church. Paul says this, For those who serve well as deacons, they gain, good, they, they gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So you can actually gain this. I thought that was interesting. So how do you gain this? Notice a little bit... Uh, what I was kind of overwhelmed with a couple of weeks ago when I was teaching on Wednesday night on 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 through 16, where the Apostle Paul makes some rather shocking for our culture, shocking demands on which people we care for financially. You may not agree with the Apostle Paul, but the Apostle Paul was like, yeah, you don't just help everybody. You really help those people that are righteous and are living godly lives. And if they're not living a godly life, if they're a widow that are truly a widow, they're in need, but they're not living a good life, don't help them. This is Paul. I mean, listen, I don't like it either, but it's Paul, so it's, I have to do something about it. But Paul makes it very clear about that. Now, this is what, notice what he's saying in this text, 1 Timothy 3.13, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also they get confidence. In the faith. They become more bold in their faith. By what? By being in good standing. Um, I don't know if what we really want, spiritually speaking, is just a lazy maturity. Kind of a lazy, strong faith. We don't want to do the work of getting strong faith. We just want a strong faith. Um, I, I use this phrase a lot. I'm not a spiritual communist. Like, I just, I don't think we're all equal in terms of maturity. Now, in terms of, like, honestly, in terms of our, like, our, our situation with Christ and that he loves us all and that there is no Jew or Gentile, male or female. I mean, I, I, I get that. I don't get an extra standing. I don't get any of that stuff. But there is a maturity. Paul actually says that that's why there's even division, like good divisions in the church to separate those who are less mature from those who are mature. It's good for us to see that. Why? You know Why? 
What's interesting is most people go, but then those of us that are just way down here, we're just going to feel sad about ourselves. That's what we think. And Paul would go, why? Like, why, why would you feel sad about yourself? Why, why don't you aspire to more? Like, why don't you aspire to be like them? I love this idea. I can't tell you the number of people when they speak, and, and it can be the weirdest circuit. It's not just Billy Graham that impresses me. Like, some people in the weirdest circumstances that just demonstrate, I look at them and I just think, wow, that is crazy. That is amazing. I don't know how they did that. I don't know how they stayed in that marriage. I don't know how they forgave that drunk driver. I don't know how they studied the word of God like that. I don't know how they, right? When I, whenever I look at these things, I look at all of them and like the person deserves zero credit for it. All that person did was trust God and he was faithful. Think about it. I really believe that. I, I really believe that. That none of us get a step up in any way, shape, or form except the, in, in our faith, except there are many of us that have truly trusted the Lord. And when I look at that faith in you, it makes me want to trust God more. You see the difference? I don't look at people who are more spiritually mature than me and go, you're making me feel bad about myself. I don't do that. I go, I, I could have that faith. I, I really do. I could have that faith. And then I go, I don't know if I want it because that's going to be really hard. And I got to play pickleball this afternoon so I don't have time. Right? This is what we do. We got hobbies. We don't have time to, uh, this, was a, this was a profound, why do I not have confidence? One of the biggest reasons why I don't have confidence is that if you were to look at my day timer and you were just asked, so what do you need confidence to do today? Woke up, showered, no, went to IHOP, talked to a couple of friends about, and we talked about mission stuff, but it was kind of more, you know, kind of a great conversation. And I did a Bible study. I mean, hear me, I need the Holy Spirit for that kind of, right, insight stuff, but then I came here, and I'll go to lunch, and I'll probably, I need to get a haircut. Like, this is my day, right? Read the Bible study, which, I'm hear me, I need the Holy Spirit and then I'm going to go home tonight and have supper with my wife, which is a wonderful thing. Hear me, it's a wonderful thing. And God, God I, I literally goes, yeah, okay, then I, I gave you all the spirit that you need to accomplish that. I, this, is, this was a profound example for me. How many of you remember watching the Twin Towers falling in New York City on that Tuesday? Okay. Lori McDaniel at Ozark Christian College watched the exact same events that I watched and she comes to staff meeting that Friday and says, hey, I'm just letting everybody else know. I've talked to her direct supervisor, um, but I'm moving to Kabul, Afghanistan. Single, single woman. So I don't know what you were thinking. I was thinking, get him. Did you see President Bush? He said, we're going to kill them all. Lori McDaniel, which I thought was fun, actually. Lori McDaniel said, I need to move to Afghanistan. And worked from September to December to get her stuff in order and flew over in January of 2002. And she would write back stories about what she was experiencing in Kabul, and I kept going, oh, I wish I were you, kind of. Right? So I, I think about that a lot. I think about, you know, do you really want... Um, it, it's not, you know, he's talking about entering into the present. So we'll get there. Entering into the presence boldly. But part of the confidence that we don't have 
is because, A, we haven't really kind of thought through what we have in Jesus Christ. And part of it is, is because we're still kind of going through from IHOP to old school bagel to getting our haircut to OSU homecoming. And we're never, really, we're never really trusting God with some profound things. And by the way, here are some very profound things that are, are, are for those of you that really know what I'm talking about, um, to truly trust God in forgiving someone is profound. To truly let it go. I don't mean say you let it go and just still be really angry inside. There's lots of different things that you can, and, and, and by the way, that is how our faith grows And as our faith increases, I genuinely believe the natural thing that then goes up is our confidence. And a lot of the reasons why a lot of us don't have confidence in God is because we, in our our relationship with God, not just confidence in God, that's trust. I I don't mean trust in God, but a confidence in our relationship with God is because we've never really exercised that muscle. It literally is just laying dormant inside of us. Right? Think about it. Where do your children lack confidence? Most likely it's something they haven't done a lot of, right? They haven't really done a lot of this. I, I guarantee you, Matt Holliday's not going, yeah, I step up to the plate, I'm not really confident. No, he's confident. But I bet you if I were to rewind it back and I asked him, hey, you ever not been confident at the plate? Oh, yeah, yeah. And so I just went back to the batter's box and back to the batter's box and back to the batter's box. What if faith is like that? What was interesting was, from a Jewish perspective, this is more natural. When I was in Israel this year, Ori, our guide, said to us, what's wrong with many of you Christians is that you don't understand that faith is a muscle you need to exercise and grow and develop. You just think you have it or you don't. Yeah, I just don't have that kind of faith. And Ori says that very much in their Jewish culture, which I'm going, well, hey, I want to be Jewish like certain aspects of it, right? I I want, I mean, I share a lot of that. And he would just describe how much their culture really understands this and he sees Christian people not getting it all the time. I thought that, that, don't you think it's true? Many of us think that the faith that we have or the confidence that we have with God is kind of like you just have it or you don't. Like Jim, he just has more confidence. That's kind of his personality. Don't we think that? I just don't have that kind of confidence. That's not my personality. This isn't personality. Again, if it's personality, it's this. And if it's this, it's actually false. That's the kind of bad confidence to have. Right? That's the kind of wrong confidence that you want to have. Sure, employers and girlfriends like it. But it just doesn't impress the creator of the universe. And so look at what he is, I guess, calling for, and it is these deacons who have served well, gain good standing, they gain confidence by literally staying in it and investing in who Jesus Christ is. And so we get to the book of Hebrews. I'll give you a few of these, and we'll be, we'll be ready to wrap up. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. Hebrews 3, 6, the end of the sentence says this, but Christ is faithful over all God's house as a son, kind of comparing him to Moses. And then it says this, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So notice what he says here. We can be confident 
This is, this is what's interesting. Some people go, well, we should just be confident no matter what. And I want to say, actually, the Bible doesn't speak like that. The Bible does not speak like that. There's a, a new book out recently. Um, me and Nancy got into a conversation about it. Ryan uh, and Drew, Ryan, Vincent and Drew Moss are going through it with another area pastor, but it's called Paul and the Gift. And in that book, he says that one of our problems when we talk about grace as this free gift that's just freely given is that that's just one dimension of what the concept of grace is. It's one of about 16 different ideas. And it has just been the emphasis since the Reformation. And it's way, the word grace is way more complicated. It's much deeper and richer. Sure, that's true. I'm not going to disagree with you. But when you keep talking about that, like God doesn't expect anything back, that's actually not a biblical idea. You read the Bible, he clearly expects a lot of things back. No, God just gives without any expecting anything back, right? I, I guarantee you the majority of us as people would just nod to that. I could get you unsuspectingly. I could say to you in the right context, God freely gives to us Jesus and love and grace and his forgiveness and doesn't expect anything back. Amen? And you would say amen, and so would I. So it's not biblical. Okay? It's it's deeper. Again, grace is, by the way, still grace, crazy and awesome. and We can't get it out of his hands. He freely gives it, but it's deeper. Now, here's what's interesting. This is one of the reasons why we don't get confidence is because there is an if piece to it. I, I want to say to some people, it's, it's much like what Dr. Laura Schlesinger, do you remember her? Love that woman. Um, I think if I was a woman and Jewish, I'd be her. I loved how she speaks to people. I think it's just fascinating. But a little while back, Dr. Laura was talking to somebody, and she was going, I just don't have a lot of confidence in myself, and I just don't, I don't, I just, I don't think I'm a good person, and I don't think I have, I just don't have all of this. And you know what she said to her? Well, tell me what you have done to, to have good confidence in yourself. Like, tell me what you've accomplished. Tell me what you've done. You don't get it by just thinking thoughts. You get it by having character. And when you have character, you can say, I'm a woman of character. So she wasn't talking about, like, worldly achievements. She was talking about real, this is why I tell people, um, I believe that the worth of an individual, which is connected to this concept of confidence, I always tell people, even people that are always, oh, I'm a nobody, I'm a nobody, I always say, boy, you have, you have high self-esteem, right? When you think of high self-esteem, you usually think of people who think like they're awesome. But actually, I think it works like this. You have high self-esteem and you have low self-esteem, okay? This is Jim's idea, okay? High self-esteem is I, I, I. I, 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 Me, 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 me. Low self-esteem is there is no I or me. You just, there's, it's just completely different. And then, by the way, I think there's good and then there's bad. I, 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 I am awesome. I, 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 I am amazing. I, 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 and I am. And then there's the I, 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 I am terrible. Right? So you have high, bad self-esteem. <laughs> it's still high because all you do is talk about you. Don't say it's low. Low is you wouldn't talk about you. You would have what the world would call high, bad, or what the world would call just low self-esteem. But that's actually not low at all. You talk about you all the time. You just have a bad version of yourself. And again, this is from a worldly standard. And then there are those people that have more of a, say, we would say good, but like a positive view of themselves. Right? See, this is where we get our confidence from, or our lack therein. 
But anybody that likes to talk about themselves all the time, whether good or bad, still can't get rid of the eye. And the beauty of it is what? This text isn't calling for us to have a confidence in ourselves. It's something in radically different. It's a confidence that we have in Christ. So then we might say, so then I guess it really doesn't matter who I am at all. And actually, that's the other lie that I find to be wrong. No, it really does matter. I'll go back to Dr. Laura Schlesinger. I'll go back to how a lot of these texts... See, why, why, does, why does Jesus have confidence in who he is? Because he knows who he is. Why did the disciples have confidence in, in front of their enemies? Hear me. It's, they know who Jesus is. And because they know who Jesus is, they now know what? It's not just Jesus. This is the beauty of it. It's not just Jesus. What's the second piece? They know who they are. So there is a self-element to this, and this is what we lose. This is why, in the end, I think there's still a disconnect. We still haven't plugged it in. That when I stand up and wrongly go, it's all about Jesus. It's all about wrongly go. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. You need to have confidence in Him and confidence in Him and confidence in Him. There are a lot of us are going, but I don't have that confidence in Him. I need to try to get that confidence in Him. Okay, I'll try. I'll grunt more. I I don't know how you're trying, but the truth is that's not the kind of trying. And then you just blame it on personality. Right? Jim has it. Susan doesn't, or whatever, right? My apologies to the Susans. That's, that's not, again, what we're talking about. I genuinely believe that one of the reasons why a lot of us don't feel saved is because, A, we don't understand what salvation is. But I would even argue, B, we have short-circuited the entire process where we've told people you can live any way that you want and you still have salvation. So you know what? They live any way that they want and they don't feel saved. And you want to know why? Because they're not living the saved life. They're not living a life that is connected to the power of the Holy Spirit. They're not living a life where Paul would say they are in good standing. We have wrongly assured them, whether or not they're saved or not, I'm not even getting to that point. But we have wrongly assured them of a feeling that is coming from something they're not even doing. And the assurance that we have finds its root and its basis in the work of Christ, that we have confidence in the work of Christ. I mean, I I could preach that all day long. I walk boldly into the presence of God. Okay, listen to my statement. I walk boldly into the presence of God with nothing that I have done, but that first, what he has done for me in Jesus. Now, Now listen to the second part of this. And I then at that moment claim, I claim by faith, the promises that God has given me. And I experience that life together in him now. And so it is by faith that I have this confidence. It is through my constant persevering in faith that I now have confidence. It is seeing the fruit of the Spirit. See, this is the problem. When when you walk around and go, and hear me, again, I still don't care what you believe about can or cannot lose your salvation. But when you walk around and promise people who are not seeing fruit, growing fruit, or interested in doing it, that they're just fine, at best, you're confusing them. Because they're going, I don't feel it. When I'm talking to my mom, she promised me everything is okay. It's like me telling my kids, you don't need to go to class. I'm sure you'll be fine. 
You feel like you're a student? I have a backpack. Okay, good. Then you're a student. But this is what we do, right? But imagine if we said, no, hear me. This is where we can get it wrong. So then you're telling me if I, can, if I can manufacture this fruit or if I can make this fruit look like it's part of my life, then I'm saved? No, 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 no. That's imitation fruit. That's not, I'm, not, I'm not talking about faking it. I'm not talking about self-righteousness. I'm not talking about any kind of self-worthiness. Look what I did. I'm a preacher. Look at what I did. I went on a mission trip. Look at what I did. I gave to the poor. Yeah, take that before the Lord. No, again, I with confidence claim I got nothing, God. I got nothing but what Jesus Christ has done for me. And I'm here to claim that by what? By faith. So the book of Hebrews actually tells us that we can enter boldly if we persevere. See, and what we want to say is, oh, you don't need to persevere. You can still enter boldly. Just don't persevere. Show me that in the text. Show me that in Hebrews 3.6. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting. What's interesting is we're actually holding fast to our confidence. Isn't that interesting? It's not we hold fast and we have confidence. We're holding fast our confidence. Which, by the way, then leads us back to Christ. And this is the beauty of it. This is how this wonderfully fits together. So what I want you to do is to kind of recognize that what Christ has done for us is primary, is first and foremost. And then what I want you to see is that so when we have an opportunity or when you think about the return of Christ or when you identify yourself, that number one, again, I, 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 we, we need to have an order. Um, one, of the, one of the ideas that's actually used here on another word, it describes Jesus as the source of our salvation. Another word, English word, it's sometimes translated, is the cause. He's the cause. He's the source of our salvation. So that is why I don't, I'm not saved by faith. I'm saved by Jesus. And I connect to Jesus by faith. And I always want to make sure I make that clear. I'm not saved by faith. I'm actually saved by Jesus. Now, how do you, okay, that's great. How do you connect to that? By faith. Not anything that I've done on my own. It's not a, it is a gift of God so that no one can boast. And then if you're looking for, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I think I'm there. Why do I still not feel it? Okay? Now, here, here's, this is, the, this is, the, this is the, the complicated part. You can go down one of these two roads. Again, like you can go down and become self-confident in all the amazing things you've done for Jesus. That is self-righteousness, and it's a very dangerous road to go down. I'm not asking that any of us go down that road. But there is another road seldom traveled where you actually get to see and celebrate the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You get to actually see you persevering, you trusting, and you having good standing, and by that good standing, have confidence. So that's what I kind of want to say to you, if I were Laura Schlesinger, and you came to me and said, man, I'm just, I'm not feeling confident in my salvation. Instead of going, oh, you're covered no matter what, you can't fall away which really is a, it's not talked about in those terms ever. Whether that's true, it's still never talked about in those terms. What if what we, what if we just talked more like the Hebrew writer and we began to say, listen, focus on Jesus and what he has done. And like, do you see his work in your life? 
Do you see the fruit of the Spirit growing in your life? And if you go, yeah, I do. Sometimes we have fruit, we don't recognize it as such. That's why it's good to have good people around you to help you understand this. Because some people, our moms or dads kind of messed us up with this issue. Our friends messed us up with this issue, right? You have good friends around you that can actually remind you of what really ultimately matters. But the more that I think about the confidence that I have in Jesus, sure, it's all based on what he did. But then part of it is based on what he continued to do through the Spirit since he saved me. Like part of sanctification is us recognizing it and that sanctification producing in us what? Confidence. Okay? Okay? I think that's fascinating. And it's what happens when we only talk about half of the coin. Flip it over. You'll still see what, 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 what's happening and how that's kind of connected together. Let me pray. God, thank you for this time. And I, I pray truly that anything that I have said is not drawn away from the work of Christ. That when I look at these verses, and sometimes we just say this because we are, uh, God, I am very reductionistic in my thinking, and I have to just, change it. That even anything that I talk about, about my faith in Christ or a new confidence I have is, I got nothing other than what Jesus has done for me or what the Spirit continues to do in me. That God, may I recognize that at my best, I can never be anything more than second. And you are always first. And anytime I step out in front or anytime I try to step out um, uh, from, from kind of under or from outside under your protection and your power and your strength, it just leads to a self-confidence that is nothing more than arrogant and prideful and will receive your, your discipline at best, judgment at worst. And so God, I pray that we really would like encourage one another with these words. That's part of this confidence is that we would help one another find a courage that is based in Christ, and that we can point back to the work that you are doing in our lives. God, when we fail to recognize the work that you are doing in us, that's not, that's just, it's, it, it is hurting us. I believe it's hurting us as a community. So God, save us from self-righteousness. Save us from a kind of boasting that is self-directed. But God, help us to see also the work that you are doing in us. God, may we have the boldness that we read about today in these texts from our brothers and sisters who have long gone. May others look at us and see in us because of Jesus a confidence that makes no sense. God, I pray that we would step out in faith to experience what any one of us could experience, which is just how faithful you are. Until that time, God, I pray you'd leave us where we are. That, God, we would experience maybe even some of the frustration about our current condition. I pray ultimately, God, that would lead us to a greater love and dependence on you. It's in his name we pray. Amen.